My friend, Tyler, believed he was called to serve in pastoral ministry. After all, he was raised in a home where his parents were staff members in large churches. He even studied at a Bible training center to prepare himself for ministry. When he and his wife moved to Nashville to follow a music dream, their lives changed, and not for the better. Tyler began to drink, and it wasn't long before both the quantity and frequency increased until it was out of his control and his wife asked him not to come back home. Thanks for joining us as we talk about Tyler's sobriety journey and what it means to be a recovering alcoholic. Welcome to our podcast. I'm your host, Rick Shields, and I'm the director of the Doorways Leadership and Influence Network. I'm pleased to have Tyler joining me on this podcast. Tyler is a husband and the father of four young ladies. He's multi-talented and loves to travel. I appreciate his candor and desire to help others in difficult situations, and that's how I came to know him. Tyler was a rock for our son and family when our daughter-in-law Blair died tragically nearly four years ago. So, Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Rick, thank you so much for inviting me. I was I was so excited when you sent me the invitation and and really looking forward to being able to have this conversation with you today. Well, I want to make certain I understand some of your background, Tyler. Again, though we're friends and I've had conversations with you, I still don't know all about your background. As I recall, you grew up in a home where your parents were active in ministry. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. My parents went into a full-time ministry when I was a kid, probably about, I'd say, 11 or 12 years old. But they were always very active, volunteering. Uh, They led the children's ministry at the church we'd been at before. So I always knew them as involved in the church, teaching and discipling, leading. It's just how I've always known them. You also then felt the call to ministry, I think, and studied at a Bible training center here in Tulsa. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. So I I always loved people and wanted to be around people. And it made sense that with my parents being in full-time ministry that I go to Bible school and do vocational ministry. And that was something that I pursued for a time. Did you finish the program? You know what? I didn't finish. (laughs) As the story goes, I went to the seminary program for a couple of semesters. I came back to visit my parents. This is Fort Worth, Texas. As fate would have it, I met who is now my wife, went back to school in Texas and stayed there to be with her. Didn't finish that program. But I, I did finish my marriage license a year and a half after that. So, <laughs> there you go. You know. But you did pursue this sense of ministry <laughs> calling and training. You pursued I, I did. Well, I always volunteered in the church and was of service wherever I could be. I didn't go into full-time ministry for years down the road. My wife and I had moved to Nashville, Tennessee a couple of years after we got married. To She was pursuing some things in music. And so I followed her with that, and we were involved with a church out there, you know, in a volunteer capacity. And, you know, there were some some of the things that I'd experienced in the church I grew up in were difficult for me. It's a a pretty radical type (laughs) church. I don't want to get into a lot, and, and I have no business kind of taking their inventory here, but it was just things that I had difficulty reconciling theologically and spiritually. So I kind of backed off of this idea of doing ministry as a vocation. I went to work in the restaurant industry while we were in Nashville, and I pursued that, which was great because, again, I love people. There's always people around. 
in restaurants. So I pursued that for a time. Well, I can tell you, you grill a pretty great ribeye. I've had them. And <laughs> you know how to do that. You're really good at it. <laughs> Thanks. So our discussion today, Tyler, is about your sobriety journey. Somewhere along the way, you began drinking alcohol. Were you raised in a family that, that embraced drinking alcohol, or were they teetotalers? Uh, quite the opposite. Yeah, we were teetotalers growing up. And in the church we grew up in, it was, um, you didn't do it. No, well, I should say this. Everyone said they didn't do it. But as I learned later, there were some that did. They just didn't talk about it. But the thought was nobody drank. I didn't drink alcohol in school at all as a kid, as a teenager. We didn't do that. And uh, when I when we moved to Nashville, it was a little bit more of a liberal culture in the church there. And sure. so people drank there. And and then I was started working in restaurants. And that is a, a big deal in the, in the restaurant industry. Everybody drinks, it seemed like, anyways. And so the first time I drank, I waited for the lightning strike, and that didn't happen. So I was like, okay, well, I guess uh, drinking is okay. And and I knew, you know, I knew all the things about drinking in moderation, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And when I started drinking, I drank reasonably and responsibly for a lot of years. Maybe every once in a while, I might have gone a little overboard at a 4th of July party or something. But the beginning of my drinking was not in excess. That came later. So some are able, as you said, to drink responsibly, but others find themselves pretty quickly in a situation where they're not in control of the amount that they drink. So you're saying that drinking was not always a problem early on. You were able to control it. But then it began to control you. I'll tell you a couple of stories that might help give some context here. When I lived in Nashville, I had a friend who was on the Nashville police force, and he was a trainer. And he invited me to be part of the field sobriety training for their new officers, officers in training. And so they would bring in four civilians, and everyone would drink various amounts of alcohol. And then the officers in training would test us. Uh, we do the field sobriety test, you know, the follow the pencil and the walk the line and the things we've seen on cops episodes. And so they would do these tests and then the officers in training would tell their sergeant or their trainer, yes, I would arrest this person or no, I would not. And at the very end, they would have each one of us blow into a breathalyzer to see if the officer was correct or incorrect. Well, I passed every single one, and every single officer said, I'd let this guy go. And then when they had me blow, I blew a .17, which is more than twice the legal limit. This was a, <laughs> in the moment, I, I was probably about 24, I thought, this is amazing. I can hold my liquor. I can drink a lot and, and still be functional. But it, you know, it really was a bad thing for me because it, it just told me, hey, I can drink more than other people and still drive home or still appear to be normal, appear to be sober when I wasn't. That was one of those, you know, there's critical moments in the journey where the road forks, and that was a fork in the road for me, where my mm -hmm. mind, my mentality about alcohol changed. And being in the restaurant industry and having friends in that, and it was just normal to drink while we were closing down the restaurant at the end of the night. And so the, the quantities and the frequency just continued to increase. I can't tell you, I can't put my finger on a date, but at some point in in that period of time, drinking 
was no longer social, but it was necessary. I, I just needed to drink at night. Did you and know it was a problem by that point? I look back, you know, being reflective is so powerful because I look back and I go, I knew it was a problem. Like normal people, they don't Google, am I an alcoholic in the middle of the night? Like, I don't know. No, I don't know if you've ever done that, but most normal people that I know don't do that, <laughs> you know, and, and then, and then take these tests online. And then when they say, yes, you're an alcoholic, say, well, that test has to be wrong. Like I knew. But I also, I had this idea that I can fix this. I can fix this. I just, I've got to be stronger. I need more willpower. Maybe I need to, I would pray harder. I mean, I would do all these things. But one thing I was not going to do is I was not going to reach out and ask somebody for help. Because my pride would not allow that. I just, I didn't want to admit to anyone that I had a problem. That was never going to happen. At least in that time of my life. Let me take a moment. Tyler, to remind our listeners that feedback is important to us. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic, please let us know. You can drop us an email at info at doorways.cc, and we'll work on incorporating that topic or that guest into our podcast schedule. Once again, I say this every week, we really do appreciate both your feedback and your input. My name is Rick Shields, and I'm joined on this episode with Tyler, a husband, a father, a friend, and an alcoholic. A minute ago, Tyler, you said that you realized your drinking was a problem when suddenly it came from being something you could do to something you had to do. So you recognized the problem. Did you immediately begin a journey to sobriety? So when I really started to know, like, I have a problem, I knew that God can fix this problem, right? And so I poured myself back into service in the church in a in a way that I'd never done it. We had been living in Nashville. We moved back to Texas. And at the time, my parents had moved to a larger church. They were on staff at a large church here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. One of the fastest growing churches is. In that season, the church was really great. And I went to work at that church in a part-time capacity as part of the worship ministry. And my wife was there too. And I, I had convinced myself that if I if I really pour myself into ministry and, and I don't, that, you know, God would help me solve this problem. And I, and I thought maybe this, this drinking problem was a result of me kind of running from the quote calling God had on my life. Cause right. I had, I had abandoned this idea of being a pastor and just pursued a career in restaurants. I came back to the church in a way where I was really pursuing ministry. And it was having the ups and downs with drinking along the way, thinking at some point this is going to be fixed. And I eventually got offered this really, really great position as an executive level pastor at a church in um, Jacksonville, Florida. And I took that job and I thought, this is it, man. This is, I'm going to, I'm going to take this position. I'm going to get this under control. Life is going to be beautiful. And we moved to Florida and the, the drinking was as bad as it had ever been. Because, well, one, in Texas, the liquor stores close at 9 o'clock Monday through Saturday. Florida, it's seven days a week at midnight. Big difference. Yeah, and, and, and what I found also to be true, that it was even more difficult. At the point there in Jacksonville, I really knew I had problems. Uh, we had two services Sunday morning and a service Sunday evening. And between the morning and afternoon services, I was driving to the liquor store to get what I needed to get me through the evening. 
I just, I was really, really a slave to the bottle in a really terrible way. That position dissolved in about a year and a half. I didn't get let go. I, I was asked to leave because the person who had hired me was asked to leave and I was collateral damage. But I know that it probably wouldn't have been much longer and I would have torpedoed that job by myself. I just, mm. I was spared. <laughs> I was spared the embarrassment of that because of who I was associated with in that position. And so we, we moved back to Texas to McKinney, me and that other pastor and another pastor. And we planted a church in McKinney, Texas. And all the while, I'm just, again, I just can't stop drinking. And I had done what I felt was a pretty good job of, of kind of hiding the quantities, hiding the consistency. I think that my leadership knew that I was having problems, but I don't think they knew the severity of it. We're back in McKinney, Texas. Now I'm in real trouble because I'm doing full-time ministry and I'm a full-blown alcoholic and I don't know how to stop and I don't know who to go to. Because if I go to my, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if it makes sense. It It was very, very dark, very, very dark time for me and for my family. And and at this point, I had done a pretty good job of kind of shielding my family, my wife and kids up to this point of how bad it was. But that shield had fallen. And now my family knew, knew the severity of what was happening. It got to a point where it was so bad that my wife and, and I, I, so I quit working at the church, honestly, because I felt like a fraud and I didn't want to be there anymore. I went to work in an industry that I knew very well, uh, that allowed me a lot of freedom. So I was, uh, I had been a general contractor at one point in my life. So I went back to contracting, which means I, I lived my days in my truck driving from job site to job site. So that, it, that was more licensed to drink. And at one point, my wife uh, invited me not to come home anymore. Well, that's rough. Uh, yeah. She, um, she was done and it was my fault. I mean, I had, I had really created a mess in my house. And that was the first time I knew like I needed help. And I, I went to a rehab in uh, Florida. I checked into a 30-day rehab, and it was great. It was um, a Christian-based rehab. And it, it, there was a lot of good I got out of it. But one thing that rehab didn't expose me to was anything related to 12 steps. And when I left the rehab, I was drinking three days later. And I couldn't figure that out. I came home, and I engaged a 12-step fellowship here in McKinney, Texas. The journey was difficult and it was bumpy and it was two and a half years involved in that fellowship before I surrendered. And it wasn't, it was surrendering to the process and it was surrendering to God in a way that I've never done in my life. So I followed God, I chased God, but what I learned was there were things in my life that were blocking me from him. And I had to get those, I had to remove those. And I didn't know how to do it. Now, I can promise you at times that I was in church, at times I was studying theology, I had heard these things before, (laughs) but I I had finally reached a level of pain that would drive me to the place of the willingness to do what was being asked of me. To actually apply the things is another thing, isn't it? You learn about them, but make the application. That's difficult. It is. So to, yeah, we talk about something called rigorous honesty. And and I had always thought of myself as an honest person. But when I look back, I'm like, I'm not really, I wasn't as honest as I thought. Because I, I might tell you the truth, but I'm leaving out half of the context that is necessary to fully understand what's happening. 
And these are the kind of deceptions or manipulations that I might do to get ultimately an end result for me. The scripture talks about confession. So I always knew God forgave me for the things I had done, and I would bring sin to him and ask for forgiveness. I knew God would forgive me, but confessing these to another human is a completely different thing. And that was something that was required of in this 12 steps fellowship. Like it's time to confess to another human. It's the step says uh, we're honest with ourselves, with God and another human being. Uh, And we tell them the exact nature of our wrongs. Hmm. Well, the scripture talks about confession is what makes us whole. God forgives, but confession brings a wholeness or healing. And so that was one of those critical moments for me where I confessed all this stuff that I've been holding on to, things that I was going to take to the grave. And I found freedom from those things that had been weighing me down with shame and guilt for all these years. And so it's it was like these layers that are being stripped away that allowed me to have this connection to God that I always wanted and I never had. That was one of the big ones. And, and in that process, you know, we deal with things like fear. And I had no idea how full of fear I, I really was. I learned how to deal with fear. Like, and, you know, we're not talking about snakes and spiders. And I hate to admit it, but I'm terrified of spiders. I do not like them at all. That's not the kind of fear. It's the fear of financial insecurity, the fear of dying alone, the fear of my kids hating me or a child dying or, you know, all these other things, the things that would keep me up at night and how to deal with those and how to put those back in God's lap and really give him control of my life and trust him. When I first started the 12 step, my sponsor mentor, he had me write this down in the front of my book. He said, uh, we're building a relationship with God based on trust. That was what we were doing. And as I've gone through the process and I've learned how to trust God. So we started with the small stuff, right? I start with, I trusted him with all this crap in my history that I wanted to clean out. And he gave me grace. It wasn't the judgment I expected. It was grace. And then I trusted him when I made amends to people I'd hurt. And then now I learn how to trust him with bigger things. We had um, about $15,000 stolen from us a few months ago in our business from some online hackers. Normally, that's the kind of thing that would have spun me out and freaked me out. And I was I was pretty upset in the moment. But when I got to the end of the day, it's, I just asked myself this question, do you trust God or do you not? And that's where I have to land. What I learned in the sobriety journey is that I can fully trust God with all of my life. And that's what I had never done before. I felt like I had to keep some sort of control. <laughs> and me yeah. running my life did not go well. That seems to be one of the main issues, isn't it? Yeah. Tyler, here's the good news. You're cured of alcoholism, right? <laughs> you That's know, what a lot of um, people believe, isn't it? It is. So we we talk about this, uh, and the language is important. I've recovered from alcoholism. Cured is another thing. Now, there's there's alcoholism, and there's what we talk about as the spiritual malady, which is what I had, which means I have this obsession in my mind that tells me if I drink this time, it's going to be different, even though history has proved that wrong. But then one of the more important pieces is the physical change that happened in my body. So when I put alcohol in my body, at some point, my body changed and it fires off a craving and I don't know how much I'm going to drink. Now, I might 
I might have two drinks and one on the first night and say, yeah, that's okay. I'm okay. But the reality is, is the cravings, especially at the end, were so insatiable that I just, I, I just couldn't stop. And so I know my body chemistry changed and, and science has proven this. Doctors have proved this. So I know that for me, alcohol is always going to be bad. Always. And so <laughs> my sponsor said this to me, he said, you can go drink again if you want. Just don't lie to yourself about what's going to happen because eventually you're going to be back where you were. Or I can choose this spiritual solution, which is in the freedom that I have today is way too good. I don't take it for granted. It's a gift. It's fragile. I cherish it. So I don't, it's not, and it's not because of anything I, because I'm special or I'm so strong or whatever. God did this for me because I tried on my own and he did it for me. All I did was align myself with these principles. And then I continue to walk them out as best I can day by day. Am I perfect? Far from it. Just ask my wife. I do as best I can walk these out because the last thing I want is to go back to that bottle and go back to drinking. I had somebody ask me, if you could be cured and drink again, would you? (laughs) I said, why would I want to? For me, in the end, I only drank for the effect produced. So to be, in essence, to be drunk. Why? I don't want that anymore. Being drunk was an escape from reality. It was an escape from my emotions. It was an escape from what I was feeling. And now I can, I can deal with those and I can trust God with my life. So I don't, I don't want to go back to drinking. Nothing in me today wants that. And since the day that God removed that, which was about two and a half years ago, I haven't thought about drinking not one time, not once. Which answers what was going to be my next question. Do you think you'll ever drink again? There's a part in our literature that talks about how we react to alcohol. And it it basically, it says the problem has been removed. If tempted, we recoil from it as like we do a hot flame. Says we are placed in a position of neutrality, which means I don't judge others if they drink. If if, If they can do it responsibly, good, go ahead. I can't. It also says I'm not cocky and I'm not afraid. So I'm not afraid of it, but I'm not going to be arrogant either. This is our position as long as we remain in fit spiritual condition. So there's there's a caveat there. So as long as I maintain spiritual fitness, I know that I'm safe and protected from it. It requires you to maintain that spiritual fitness, to run for it, to seek after it. What would you tell someone who's struggling with alcoholism? What Are there good resources available to help them? Yeah, I would tell them, give me a call. <laughs> First of all, let me share with you my experience in and there are great resources out there. There really are. I tried a lot of different things. I tried, you know, I prayed. I and and prayer is great. I I went to therapists, counselors. I did medications. I did rehab. And what worked for me was a twelve step fellowship. And yeah. and I'll tell you this: uh, the twelve step fellowship I'm a part of is in 100 percent alignment with what I see in Scripture. And and not everything that everyone says in the room is in alignment. I just kind of let that go, but the literature is in alignment. And so there's nothing I've experienced there that has contradicted anything that I see in scripture. They support each other. So it, it helps with my spiritual growth the whole way. And so for one, for anyone who might be a Christian in the church struggling with this, there's hope. I would say, don't be afraid to ask for help. 
And, and yeah, don't you know, be so ashamed and, and so embarrassed that yeah, you yeah, say, I no, I can't get help because that would be an admission of the fact I get a problem. It's it's almost like it's the admission that I'm weak, which I right. am. But who wants to admit that? Nobody. Right. I, Nobody I, had a, I was talking to a brand new guy last night, less than 24 hours since his last stream. And he just said, I just don't want to admit that I'm that I can't figure this thing out. I'm like, I get it. I get it. Nobody does. But that's that's the first step. The first step is admitting I can't do this by myself. Tyler, thanks for this. This has been really, this has been good. It's likely there are people that will hear this that either they themselves are struggling with alcoholism or they certainly know someone, a loved one who is. I wonder, would you be willing to conclude our time with a prayer for those who've, who've heard the podcast, need the courage to make the changes they need to begin their own sobriety journey? Would you be willing to do that? I would love to. Father, we just, we love you. And I'm so grateful for the gift in my life and in those that I love that I've seen get free from the bondage of alcoholism. God, for those who are still suffering under that weight and struggling, and for those families, I ask that you bring a measure of grace and strength to reach out and ask for help. Lord, that, that they would come to the end of themselves quickly so that they can find you and find what you have to offer because this is this life is just too good to miss. God, I'm so thankful for our time. I'm thankful for my friend Rick. And I ask that you use anything that was said to bring hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our podcast and will follow us or subscribe so you can be notified when new podcasts are released. And please consider sharing it with a friend. Until next time, this is Rick Shields. And on behalf of the Doorways Leadership and Influence Network, here's my prayer for you. May you have rest when you need it, strength when you want it, and joy when you least expect it. Until next time, may the Lord bless you as you follow after Him 